The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
blessing by faith I've received from above. Oh, glory, my soul is made perfect in love. My prayer has prevailed, and this moment I know the blood is applied. I am whiter. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know you hear the cry of my heart. I know you hear the cry of your people. And I know you come with the mighty power of your blood and by faith in your precious atonement, you change us, and you wipe away our sin. You remove it from us, and by faith you give us a pure heart. But it's a real pure heart, and I just come, Lord, I thank you today. I worship you. You are a God of such amazing love and mercy. You have for many of us who listen today, you have carried us. You've provided for us. You've heard the cry of our hearts. Lord, I pray now that this message that you've placed on my heart I pray, Lord, that it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth over this city. Lord, make it plain. Unveil our eyes and our hearts. For, Lord, I know there is a work to be done in our hearts before a work can be done among the lost and the dying of this city. Come, Holy Spirit of the living God, Anoint now these words I speak in the name of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit of the living God. Open the hearts and minds of your people. Accomplish your purpose today. I pray in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. God hears our cry. But what if 
we have been taught a false theology that causes us to no longer cry out? What if we have learned through the years about a theology that says the work was finished at the cross, and so now all of your past, present, and future sins are forgiven, so just enjoy God. What if we were taught that? And many of you have been taught that. And so you no longer cry out because you've got it made in the shade. But what if it's a lie? What if it's not true? You know and I know that Satan will bring every possible deception to turn us away from recognizing our own desperate need for Jesus. Satan will come and bring every possible deception and distraction to turn our hearts away from seeking after Jesus Christ. And we need to understand some of the history the history in the Christian church that turned the tide away from the baptism of the Holy Spirit in truth and power and righteousness and turned us toward a baptism in our sin. Oh no, we have signs and wonders, we show it. And so in the 40s we had emerge a whole group of men and women. I'm not going to judge them. All I can say is that they did not preach holiness. They did not preach the righteousness of Jesus except by imputed righteousness, which is not righteousness. Oral Roberts, Catherine Kuhlman, Co. I could name many more. They came preaching a baptism of the Holy Spirit that came simply by faith without righteousness. And the result was great carnality, sin, entered into the body of Christ. Now back in 1906, there had been a group of people praying. William Seymour, a black pastor with one eye missing, was injured and he was blind in one eye. He was from the Episcopal Methodist Church. He was so hungry for Jesus. He was so hungry crying out for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He read the the verses that we read in the Gospels. And we read in Acts. And he said, where is this today? It's nowhere to be found. He went to a meeting Charles Parham, 
Because he was black, he was not admitted. He had to sit in the hallway so as not to mix with white students. An utter shame of the Jim Crow laws. But God was so burning in his heart for revival and for Jesus, he was willing to sit there and listen to the teachings of this man Parham as he taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and his heart just went out after God even more. He overlooked the racial slight. When he left that school, he was invited to go to L.A. to preach in a church, and he went there to become its pastor. But he shared his intense hunger for the baptism of the Holy Spirit for Jesus, and they were so offended they locked him out of the building. He had no place to go. He had no money. He had a suitcase. That's all he had. And it had been put out on the front steps with orders to leave. But a Christian couple over on Burnbray Street in Los Angeles was moved deeply by his cry for the Holy Spirit and for Jesus. And they invited him to come and stay with them and to use the front porch as a place to pray. And he he did that. The Holy Spirit began to move in people's hearts and called them to come and pray with him. I'm praying that happens with me. I'm praying God moves in your heart and brings you to the National Prayer Chapel where we can honestly search after God because we're hungry for Jesus. And by the way, just a quick note, this coming Friday I'm going to be live again with a live call-in program for people who want to pray people who want to share their testimony, please call. This Friday, I'll be live. I'm looking for people who honestly are at the end of their foolishness and their sin, and they want deliverance. Are you one of those? If you are, then come. I'll give you a phone number. Jot it down. If you're at the end of your foolishness, you want God, you want the Holy Spirit, you want Jesus, you're hungry, then call me. I'll give you directions to come. 703-489-1785. That's 703-489-1785. One seven eight five. We're right on the border between Woodbridge, Virginia, and Manassas. Easy to easy to find us. Not far off Route ninety five. But it wouldn't matter if we were hard to find. If you're hungry, you'll find us. But now, what happened is in nineteen o six the Holy Spirit began to move in great power. 
and the baptism of the Holy Spirit began to come with tongues and with other manifestations, the healing of the sick, the deliverance from sin. Now, all of these people who were part of this prayer group believed in the Wesleyan theology that when you come to Jesus, you leave your sin. When you are converted, you leave your sin. You are given the power by the Holy Spirit to no longer walk in any known sin in your life. You're baptized in water as a covenant seal that you are washed clean by the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus. Then they believed that you cried out to God and he did a second work of grace where he actually removed the old nature from you so that you no longer struggled with, with your inner being. Now, there's always temptation, but they wanted that inner soul cleansing that's promised in the Scriptures. And Wesley taught the second blessing. And all of these involved in this, the greatest move of God in the 20th century that has swept countless millions into the kingdom of God that has now gone to every nation in the world. Now, in this Azusa Street, they are very simple, they are very uneducated, They want Jesus. And Jesus comes and meets them. And the cry of their heart is heard by God. God will always hear the honest cry of our hearts. Now for Hannah, it took some time. Year after year, she went and cried out to God. And God heard her and answered her prayer. So for some, it takes some time. For others, it's a very quick process. There is nothing in the Scripture that indicates that it needs to take a great deal of time. It depends on how willing you are to surrender and how quick you are willing to obey. We've been taught we don't need to do this. But at Azuzu Street, they believed that they had to do this and that all of them were washed and clean. Not just walking in known sin, they had left that, but now believing that they had received heart purity. And now they were crying out for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was poured out in the greatest move of God in modern history. Why? because they were pure of heart. And God found a fit place for his dwelling. Now, what happened? Well, by 1912, six years later, Azusa Street was starting to die. And by 1915, it was over. It was over. 
what caused Azusa Street to die. Pastors would come. They would be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. But their pride was unwilling to accept the simpleness of this black pastor. And they went out and started their own counter work. Now, one of the men who did that was a man by the name of William Durham. William Durham was a very persuasive, popular figure in Chicago. He was out of the Baptist church. He did not have a background in holiness. And he brought forth a theology that has become the norm today. It's a theology that was adopted by the Foursquare Church. It's a theology that, frankly, the Assemblies of God looks back and says, that's who we are too. I want to share more of that story today. I'm going to be reading to you from The Rejected Blessing, an untold story of the early days of the Pentecostal movement by Jim Kerwin, a dear brother of mine that I deeply love. He and his wife, Denise, have stayed with us many times. The chapter I'm going to share with you today is Why Durham Won. Charles Durham won. And the result is God's people stopped crying out and became satisfied with an experience of what they called Holy Spirit, but no righteousness, no holiness. If the losers in this grand theological dispute had written Durham's epitaph, <coughs> pardon me, it might have sounded like the words Charles Parham. Remember, Charles Parham was the man that Seymour sat out in the hall and listened to him lecture in his school. This is what Charles Parham wrote about William Durham the diabolical end and purpose of his satanic majesty in perpetuating durism on the world is repudiating sanctification as a definite work of grace. It's now been clearly revealed. By seeking to destroy the grace of sanctification, he is seeking to efface the only grace of God to make us overcomers and then and thereby hinder necessary preparation for redemption. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that Durham's theology is preventing God's people from accomplishing the necessary work to be saved. Countless, countless numbers of men and women will end up calling themselves Christians but end up in hell because they stopped crying out to God and believed this man Durham's lie. 
Let all who have been deceived thereby humble themselves and seek restoration to this grace within we stand. Romans 5, 2. As you cannot receive the real Pentecost on an unsanctified life. But in theology, as in war, the losers don't get to write the last word, and they certainly don't write the histories. The winners, Durham's spiritual heirs, the Assemblies of God, the Foursquare Church, and others, all continue to pay tribute to Durham as the spiritual and theological innovator and father of their belief system regarding sanctification. Once they clearly won the field of battle, they became more magnanimous toward their second blessing brethren. And the issue now seems to garner little interest except perhaps among historians. For the majority of Pentecostals, the three-step way of salvation is dead, replaced by Durham's two-step approach. Why did Durham and his followers, were the vast majority, prevail? There are at least three reasons. One, Durham had a powerful persona and a persuasive public ministry. All first-hand accounts indicate as much. His meetings were exciting. His preaching was electric. People sensed the presence of God. Seekers seemed to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and people even got healed. The feeling was, if this teaching isn't correct, why is God blessing this ministry? And it seemed like a fair question. In retrospect, we know it was a deception. As Pentecost spread, it encompassed many more people from non-holiness backgrounds than it did of those of the Wesleyan tradition. An Assembly of God Bible scholar and historian William H. Menz points out, a problem began to manifest itself in the ranks of the early Pentecostal movement with large numbers of people who began to enter the movement from groups who knew neither the Wesleyan nor the Keswickian type of holiness doctrine. The Keswickian type of Holiness Doctrine, you may recognize from the book by Norman Grubb, The Intercessor. Reese Howells believed in the Keswickian type of holiness. Most of these seem to have come from the Baptist. The Baptist held to a reformed view of sanctification, in which the great emphasis was upon process not crisis. Now, let's talk just briefly. The Baptist view, now it's grown into the Assemblies of God and the Foursquare Church and others, is that you don't have a crisis moment where finally you get a breakthrough with God, He hears you cry, and He responds by giving you a pure heart. Instead of that, now the doctrine is that you are sanctified through a long, slow process, but you are already saved. And now you're going to walk in sin, but you're still saved. And so none of us are perfect. They utterly deny the Wesleyan teaching. 
that perfection is love, and that God grants this to people who finally grow tired of the battle with their own heart, and God grants them the incredible gift of a pure heart. This is all strange to our ears, because all of us were raised with the belief that sanctification was a long, slow process, and that we continued to sin in this process A dear brother said to me very recently, You know, I still drink and I still smoke and the gift of the Holy Spirit is with me. So it's okay. I'm saved. All of that has come out of this teaching by William Durham. They would never have believed this at Azuzu Street. The power of God has not come into the teachings of Durham, like it came into William Seymour's teaching. Now, we need to go back. We've got to recapture the understanding that we must cry out before God. The Baptist had no need or knowledge to figure out how to accommodate the second blessing sanctification into their theological framework. So they had no problem giving Durham a theological thumbs up. The Holy Spirit seemed to see no impediment in their ignorance of the doctrine. They seemed to be baptized anyway. And they even had the gift of tongues. Now Durham was partly right. Everything pertaining to salvation is part of Christ's finished work at the cross. The Pentecostals from holiness backgrounds believed that sin was removed at baptism. They did not believe that sanctification was a long, slow process, but they believed that everything for godliness, for holiness, was given at the cross. But now through the precious promises of Scripture, Second Peter, the first chapter, through the precious promises of Scripture, we could enter into the fullness of Jesus, into the divine life. Concerning experiences, this is Durham, he allowed, He said, we do not doubt that many people come into conscious possession of the experience of sanctification after conversion, but because they were not taught the truth in the first place, shall we teach all others that they must seek sanctification as a second work? You see, Durham believed that sanctification took place at the same time as conversion. Now, experience tells us that that's not necessarily true. In fact, for most, it is not true. But Durham believed in that completed work. He just changed when it happened. Strange to say, the one tribute Durham's spiritual heirs don't pay him is to believe this key element of his sanctification doctrine. And that key element is eradication of the old sinful nature. Durham insists 
according to men's, that they reject their Wesleyan concept of eradication as unscriptural. By the time Perlman, that very able Assemblies of God theologian of a bygone generation, wrote his classic theology, he, as a spiritual heir of Durham, felt he could list eradication of inbred sin under erroneous views of sanctification. And that's where the Assemblies of God stands today. And as much as I treasure Assemblies of God and the wonderful work of God that many of them have accomplished, they have also been a part of leading astray countless numbers of people who gave up crying out to God, satisfied with a cheap grace and a cheap experience, believing that they could continue in their sin and that sanctification was a long, slow process and when they died, they'd be made holy. This is not what Durham claimed. The book, The Rejected Blessing, the author, the precious brother Jim Kerwin, writes, I am indebted to Farkas for pointing this out. The finished work doctrine was not faithfully transmitted after Durham's death. Farkas maintains that on one level, Wesleyan holiness can be broken down to two elements. A sanctification event happening at some point in time after regeneration and eradication, which means the wicked, sinful nature is utterly removed. Farkas argues that Durham's argument was directed only at the eradication or the deliverance from inbred sin. Now, Durham was not opposed to the belief of of sanctification. He believed in that. In Romans 6.6, 6, Durham affirms, In other words, our old man, the Adamic nature, was crucified with Christ, that it might be destroyed or done away with. Speaking of second work of grace, holiness people, Durham does not doubt the veracity of the inward work they claimed, for he shared the experience of a pure heart with them. He wrote, Many of these dear people love the truth concerning holiness, and doubtless had pure hearts. They taught real holiness of heart. And that's what the scriptures teach, and that's what we believe. This was Durham's position. He wrote, I have always found great difficulty harmonizing the definite second work of grace theory with the plain teaching of the word. I had no trouble, however, in proving that the Bible taught entire sanctification or heart purity. It seems to me that no one could believe the Bible and attempt to deny that its standard of teaching is holiness unto the Lord. But the minds of some have become so biased by the erroneous second work theory that you can state clearly to them that you do believe in entire sanctification and the Bible teaches it as God's only standard. 
and therefore no one can be justified short of it. And while still claiming their second work experience, they will go away and say that you do not believe in sanctification. So there's a remarkable difference in the substance between Durham and those who claim his spiritual heritage. Durham believed in entire sanctification, the elimination of indwelling sin, and his heirs, the assemblies of God, do not. Now what happened? Those who adopted Durham's teaching did not adopt this key element. Probably the short answer for why is that Durham died while the controversy was still hot. He was cut short before he could define his doctrine fully. Durham's followers, many with Baptist backgrounds, were taken up with the crusade, with the crusade against the previous exposure that they'd had to Wesleyan holiness. To put it in the vernacular, Durham wished to throw out what he considered to be the bathwater, but he very much loved the baby of sin being eradicated from the heart. This causes me such pain. Then nascent Pentecostalism the controversy was precipitated by William H. Durham, who proposed a revival view of sanctification to the modified Wesleyan view held by virtually all Pentecostals. The dispute evoked by the finished work doctrine quickly became the grounds on which the Pentecostals broke apart and realigned themselves. And I know that when this happened, the revival was over. Very early in the realignment process, however, Durham died and his finished work doctrine was left to his successors who fundamentally misunderstood the teaching or else they intentionally altered it under the conditions prevailing at the height of the raucous controversy. As it turned out, the original Pentecostal version of the finished work teaching simply went to the grave with Durham. However, the misrepresentation of Durham's doctrine happened. The true entire sanctification, freedom from indwelling sin, was from that time lost to the majority of Pentecostals, those who had come from non-holiness backgrounds. Durham's mission, executed with heat and fervor, and seeming lack of brotherly love and tact, was refocused. The entire, entire sanctification the finished work of Christ, not a man-made time frame. His followers, not understanding the true goal, eliminated the heart. Indeed, one might fairly say the pure heart of the Pentecostal movement's holiness underpinnings. As a result, the cherished doctrine, the handmaiden, the teaching that was used of God to prepare tens of thousands of hearts for the great Azusa Street outpouring, that doctrine of entire sanctification was cast out and is missing in the church today. It is no wonder then that most Pentecostals and Charismatics have never understood this.
Without this doctrine, there is a vital element in Azuzu Street's spiritual foundation that is completely lost. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews echoed Jesus' words, writing of holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 The children of the holiness movement of the late 1800s who believed God for pure, sin-free hearts saw God moving in a new way at Azusa Street. You've heard me read the story of Guy Bevington. He was one who believed in this pure heart. The Holy Spirit manifested his end-time Pentecostal power in hearts he himself had cleansed from indwelling sin. If God desired to bestow on our generation another mighty move of God, as he did at Azuzu Street, would our hearts be prepared and pure, as were William Seymour's and his co-workers, or would God's gift of entire sanctification suffer? The continuing exile is the rejected blessing, and I can tell you right now there will be no revival in America. If there is not first a work of repentance among the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, and all other Christians who finally will begin to recognize the void of their hearts as they work on their sanctification unsuccessfully and the wickedness of believing they can continue in their sin and still have the Holy Spirit That is the most wicked doctrine of all. And it became very popular in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And today. And the church today has gone the way of the world with its entertainment. With its lack of preaching on holiness and righteousness before God. It's cheap grace saying you can continue to walk in your sin even while you claim the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is blocking the church in America from addressing the horrific sin that has risen in our culture. We have been, may I use the word, castrated, No power. No fire. Went to a so-called revival up in the Vineyard Fellowship, Toronto, Canada, some years ago. There I saw the laughing. They called it the laughing revival. There I saw men and women, children rolling on the floor, barking like dogs. I saw every kind of carnality. I saw people jerking. You know what Wesley said about that? He said it was wildfire. There was no revival in Toronto. They said, come into the fire. Come into the, come into the stream of fire. That would have been holiness. There was no holiness there. There was no conviction of sin. There was only the hungry grasping after a spirit.
I'm frightened for the church. I'm frightened for you. If you're not crying out to God in your prayer closet, and I spoke with a dear sister this morning who is going into her bedroom and not just shutting the door, she's going into her closet and shutting the door, getting down on her face and weeping before God, pleading with Him to move in power in her life, to give her a pure heart. I was greatly encouraged by this. Are you doing this? It's useless to pray and not have an answer from God. When you go into the prayer closet and you cry out to God, you've got to cry out until God answers. It's going to take time. It's not going to be a quick one-minute one prayer and then you're through and you're finished. It's not going to be dipping into the scriptures and reading one passage and reading a, a polite little piece written by somebody who is giving you the morning watch. That's foolishness. It's cheap grace. Let's call it what it is. And today the church is filled with cheap grace. We've got all the answers. We're the best trained clergy any time in the history of the world. We've got more degrees behind our names. And yes, I do too. And most pastors in America are very well paid. Thank you very much. Especially mega church pastors, over a hundred grand a year easily. One pastor I saw, a hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year, including benefits. Are you kidding me? Pastor said to me, when I asked him, Is your church a worldly church? He answered, Oh, yes. I said, Why? He said, Because that's the only way we can bring sinners into the church and hope that somehow as they're in the church and they're in the worldly music and they're, they're seeing the entertainment, somehow Jesus will touch them. That pastor is very foolish. In fact, I'd say he's not even really a Christian. He walks in wickedness before God. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Pastor Kerwin writes, I leave you to ponder a scripture with which you're probably familiar, but perhaps now you'll see it in a different light. You will know of the great Jerusalem council on Acts 15, which the church convened to learn, convened to learn of God's work among the Gentiles and to determine how the same Gentiles should fit into God's economy. Luke paints a very realistic picture of this council in verse 7. At a certain point in Acts 15, Peter stands up to share, and the Holy Spirit has Luke record exactly what he shared because he was speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. Remember now that this is the same Peter who was there on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and did the public preaching under the revelation of the Holy Spirit. This is the same Peter used of God to break down the barriers to the Gentiles when he was bidden of the Holy Spirit to speak at the home of an officer in the Roman army of occupation, a man we all know as Centurion Cornelius. God did remarkable things on those two great days in church history. A people were saved, 
baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. At this Jerusalem council, Peter hearkens back to those two experiences of a good while ago, pointing out that the Gentiles' experience was every bit as divine as that of the original Pentecost band. He even draws on the most striking parallel he can use to prove his point. And if you are a tongues-as-initial-evidence person, this may surprise you. Here the great apostle then, as he bears witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did to us, and put no difference between us and them. Now fill in the blanks I left. I've left the rest of verse 9 blank. Can you fill it in from memory? Did Peter say God put no difference between us and them? They all got saved like we did. Well, they did get saved, obviously. That's not what Peter had in mind. Let me read for you what Peter had in mind. And God, which knoweth their hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. That was for Peter the God-given sign that proved to be to the great preacher of Pentecost that the Gentiles had got their hearts were purified by faith. They had been sanctified. Yes, they were saved. Glory to Jesus. In the power of the Spirit, they miraculously spoke in tongues. That's awesome. But all these years after the day of Pentecost, to bolster his argument, to make his case as strong as he could in the council, Peter's testimony was that God gave Gentiles the Spirit's witness of a purified heart, entire sanctification, heart pure, rather than tongues, was Peter's standard of understanding what God was doing. I've been reading to you from The Rejected Blessing, the untold story in the early days of the Pentecostal movement by Jim Kerwin. You can find his webpage at the finest of wheat, finestofwheat.org. You can read the whole book there. You can download it free, or you can order a copy. What if false theology has caused you to stop crying out for a purified heart, thus blocking the true blessing of the Holy Spirit from your heart? That is where the American church stands today. I pray this message you will pass on to someone else. We're out of time for today. Please, if God is calling you to be a part of this ministry, I thank all of you who have so kindly given that we could pay last month's radio bill. But already we're looking at October, and October will be one of the highest months of the year. Almost, I mean, within dollars of 4000 Would you write to me? Would you start now in helping to cover the cost of radio? Write to me at 
National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Whitbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to nationalprayerchapel.com and you can give online. Go look at the webpage. It's changed. We've made it much easier. I thank our dear brother, Ed Pugh. He's a wonderful brother in Christ who's done this work. Thank you, Ed. You've listened to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I love you, my brother and sister. Cry out to God. He will hear you. I'll talk to you soon. Jesus Christ.